0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News.
1: In May, the Mamaliliqua First Nation were celebrating on their ancestral land. For many, it was their first time dancing on that ground. For millennia, they have been the stewards of 10,416 hectares of land just north of Vancouver Island that includes extremely rare shallow coral, streams full of salmon, and yes, grizzly and black bears. That land separates the ocean from the cities. The Mammalilcoa people were forced to leave that land because of a lack of clean water, infrastructure, and children being taken away to nearby residential schools. They became a nation with no home. But all of that changed late last year when the nation's elected chief councillor, John Powell, unilaterally declared their land an Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area, or an IPCA. Now, technically, these areas have existed for as long as Indigenous peoples have. But the term itself was made official in 2018 when a federally funded Indigenous Circle of Experts published a report on how Indigenous-led conservation could help better achieve Canada's conservation and climate commitments. The Mammalilcoa people created one themselves, according to their own laws and their constitutionally recognized Indigenous rights, refusing to wait on colonial governments. And now other Indigenous nations are following suit. Indigenous-led conservation has time and again been identified as the most effective and equitable way to protect the biodiversity on Earth. Everything from habitat to wildlife and the impacts of climate change. And life on Earth needs protecting right now. Wildlife populations have decreased by an average of 69% between 1970 and 2018, according to a recent report from the World Wildlife Fund. A million species around the world are at risk. In a few weeks, Canada will host the largest United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Montreal to address the biodiversity crisis. Our country has the world's longest coastline, 25% of the world's boreal forests, 25% of the world's temperate forests, 25% of the world's wetlands, 2 million lakes, and the third largest area of glaciers on the planet. So there's a lot at stake. But is Indigenous-led conservation on the agenda? I'm Fatma Sayed, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Welcome back to Narwhal Week on the podcast. I've got two friends joining me from Vancouver today to dig deep into Indigenous conservation efforts and the biodiversity crisis. Stephanie Wood is a reporter with the Narwhal's BC Bureau. Hello. And Ainsley Kirkshank is the Narwhal's biodiversity reporter. Hi. We're about to talk about biodiversity, which is a really scary scientific word. And I want to start there. What does it actually mean? Steph, how do you understand it?
2: I agree that biodiversity kind of gives the sense of, yeah, being like a really science-y word. And it sounds kind of distant and away from us. Biodiversity is over there, and we study it. When the truth is biodiversity, like, we're a part of it. It's a part of us. It is all of the incredible creatures that we see in this world. It is all the creatures you've never heard of. It's all the creatures that bring you wonder and laughs and like make you cry. It's like when you see that sea otters hold hands. (laughs) It's like when you see that animals grieve they're dead. It's like when you find out that there is a shrew in BC that can literally walk on water. And you're like, how is that possible? (laughs) It's just everything that makes this beautiful earth that we have home.
1: I suddenly feel really emotional hearing you describe biodiversity. (laughs) You're right. It's all of life on this planet.
2: It is life.
1: Ainsley, you're actually a biodiversity reporter. How do you understand it? Oh, I think Steph described it so
3: beautifully. I think that's, yeah, just a really wonderful way to to think about it. I, I think that, you know, the other thing that we maybe don't see about biodiversity is that within all of those species and creatures, there's also like a huge amount of genetic diversity within those species that leads to kind of all of these wonderful things that we see in the world. And then there's also a kind of more broadly a diversity in ecosystems. And so that's all the different ways that these kind of creatures, whether it's plants
1: or animals, interact with each other and their environment. You know, there was a recent report um, from the World Wildlife Fund that found that global wildlife populations have declined by 69% since 1970 and that the world is basically in a biodiversity crisis. And I wonder, Ainsley, how is that affecting Canada? How bad is the biodiversity crisis here at home? I think it's something that we should all be concerned about. I mean, when, you know, you look
3: globally, there's been a major decline in biodiversity. And there's a number of reasons and sort of challenges behind that. Um, One of them is the destruction of habitat. So when we're clear cutting huge swaths of forest for lumber or converting it to farmland or we're, you know, paving over wetlands and estuaries to build our cities or building massive mines um, in sensitive ecosystems. All of these things are destroying the habitats that support a whole range of plants and animals. You know, there's. Overexploitation, so we're we're overfishing or pollution. There's invasive species and climate change too is having huge impacts for biodiversity. Each increment of warming is increasing the risk for more biodiversity loss, more extinctions. Um, already, there's a million species, uh, like you said, Fatima, that are at risk of extinction. And, and Canada isn't immune to this. So in Canada, you can think of the monarch butterfly. You can think of the southern resident killer whales. Um, these are just two species that are endangered. There's multiple populations of caribou um, that are also at risk and, and many other plants and animals. And and so, yeah, it is. It's a big problem that's having impacts.
1: You know, Steph, we outlined at the top of this conversation that we're talking about all of life itself when we talk about the biodiversity crisis. But- I think it's hard to see its impact on a day-to-day basis. Like, I'm not a monarch butterfly or a killer whale, so why should we care?
2: Mm-hmm. It has started to impact people directly in their day-to-day lives. And just like we've seen with climate change, where for a while some people can put it off and be like, it's not affecting me, it is eventually coming for you, as we've seen with wildfires and floods. Like the same thing with the biodiversity crisis. So we are seeing results, especially like the really core example out here in BC that's of concern um, is salmon. And we're seeing huge declines in salmon, and that is causing direct impacts on people's lives every day, every year, and it's only been getting worse for many populations. Many salmon populations are really close to decline. People are trying to monitor fish returning and literally seeing zero in certain streams and rivers. That has a huge impact on people who rely on fish for livelihood, especially First Nations that have relied on salmon and had a relationship with salmon for millennia. Those fish are disappearing. So it has this real practical implication of Food, food security. And also, once again, it's a relationship. It's a spiritual and a social issue that is causing a lot of people pain and grief to not be able to eat salmon every year, to not be able to smoke it, share it, have it for ceremony. And it also has these impacts that, you know, you may think about an issue and not realize the way that it's connected to biodiversity, like the way that salmon keep forests healthy, like their carcasses are dragged into the forest and it makes trees grow strong. And you may not realize what you're losing when the ecosystem loses that. But then if there's a weak forest or unstable forest or that kind of thing, like it is impacting you. and it it's just all connected. Like none of it is isolated
1: and so what impacts are you seeing of the biodiversity crisis, like in your community or just in the broader Canadian community that that shows that it that we really should be caring about what's happening?
3: No, I think what Steph was talking about is exactly right. Is that communities are already being impacted by declines in in salmon and other species that um, many communities have relied on for food. I think caribou is another another example like that. But of course, it's not just food. Many medicines that we rely on when we're sick also come from from nature. And and then I think there's also aspects of you know paving over and building on top of wetlands and estuaries is having a direct impact when there's, you know, heavy rains or, or flooding. Like historically, those ecosystems and habitats would have been able to sort of absorb some of that excess water and would have helped reduce the impacts. But that ability has been uh, really impacted. I think trees and other plants, I think, is also important to keep in mind all of these different ways that they affect us. I mean, they clean the air that we breathe, air that we're heavily polluting in some cases. And and then, like Steph mentioned, I think that um, it's really important to remember that nature is also so important for our kind of emotional well-being, our mental health, our spiritual well-being. And and so it's both kind of physically helping keep us alive. And and then also there's that that sort of emotional and and spiritual side to it that um, is really important too.
1: So this brings me nicely into my next question, which is, what do we actually do to save biodiversity? Steph, you were talking about Indigenous communities and how they've been impacted by this crisis, but Indigenous communities have also been the original stewards of biodiversity for as long as they've existed. You wrote this really lovely story about what one First Nation has done to protect biodiversity. Um, Tell us a little bit about what's happening in Mammaliluqua.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, The Mammaliluqua First Nation has a really incredible story where they established what's known as an Indigenous protected and conserved area in their territory. An Indigenous protected and conserved area is an idea that's sort of been like formed and really catching fire since 2018. It's the idea that it's a protected area that is informed by Indigenous laws, values, Indigenous blood conservation. So it's not just echoing a sort of like Western idea of a park. Um, It is about being led by the priorities, laws, and values of that specific people. And so the federal government threw its support behind some of these IPCAs, and then since then, it's taken off way more. And while it kind of began with that idea, there's First Nations everywhere and Inuit, uh, Métis peoples um, pursuing IPCAs uh, with or without government support. And so the Mamalelikla First Nation is uh, on the West Coast here, And they basically did the work to be able to declare an IPCA first by doing the research, by doing the capacity building, getting third party funding, building up their guardians program, uh, which is people who are out on the land stewarding. And then they went to the province and the feds and said, "Okay, like we are establishing this IPCA. It's happening. Would you like to sign a co-governance agreement with us? But whether you sign it or not. We are doing this. <laughs> and it's just they really wanted to invert the idea of having to go to government for permission or for funding. They really wanted to invert that sort of like patriarchal structure that the colonial government has imposed for a really long time. And it's resulted in um, them signing a memorandum of understanding with the province. They are having positive discussions with the province and they have started to have talks with DFO, too. And so it's just like a really big moment for them to really ground this new protected area like in their own sovereignty. They decide where it is, when it's established, what the borders are, what the priorities are. And they're inviting colonial government to come along if they would like to. They're all about partnership, but they're saying like, this is our land, this is our right, this is our law, and we're doing this. And it is protecting a pretty biodiverse area. They have in the waters in particular, a really rare type of Uh, shallow coral. It's the home to a bunch of really fun (laughs) animals, little rockfish prawns, and a really cute little curly worm (laughs) that looks like it's out of like Alice in Wonderland or something. (laughs) And that land supports salmon and it supports grizzly bears. And it's just like this area that's always been alive that the people have been connected with and now they're reconnecting with. As with many of these stories, like there is the history of the people um, being literally displaced from their land. So this area where they've established a protected area. Many people from the nation had never been there before this year. People were displaced from their territory in the 20th century due to a bunch of colonial factors, including residential school and like lack of infrastructure. They were not given a reserve that they could live on that could provide a home base. And just this year, for the very first time, people danced and sang there for the first time in 100 years. Once again, there's just this part of this reclamation that you just kind of can't even put into words what it means to people like what it means to their spirit and their community and it's just really really incredible story the way that they described it was it's about coming
0: home this is a very momentous day One that is, uh, a lot of work went into this, and I'm very honoured that uh, as a nation that they are fighting to be the defenders of the land for the future generations. (laughs) The practice of dictating to us what we should do for our own good is over. It's our turn to determine what's best for us.
2: The fact that we don't have salmon in the river means the bears don't the bears don't eat, then the seagulls, and all of the scavengers that come after the bears
1: don't eat. The bears don't have fish, they don't drop them at the feet of the trees. The,
3: the
2: law of and not only makes us responsible for the animals, but also their environment. I um, I lost my mom last year, so she never got to make it to Village Island. So for me, these trips are really important because I, I still have her with me, I still feel her within me, so I know she's proud and she really wants
0: want, wants me involved and, and that's why I'm here. The Mamla is going to have some opportunity to to reactivate their relationship with this, this territory, to rebuild the integrity of the ecosystems and all of the living organisms and even the aquatic fish and stuff, and this has this was something that the ancestors did, of course, from time memorial. And then with colonization, it ceased. And indigenous people had little or absolutely nothing at all to do with their relationship with Mother Earth and the territories that they occupied. So now we're going to renew this. It may it is, It's a small step, but it's a huge step. And hope, hopefully it'll continue to build and grow and every child who's a mother a child in this territory will begin to know as they grow up that they have an actual relationship with this place.
1: The people you just heard in that clip in order? are George Littlechild, Chief Counselor John Powell, May Flanders, and Chief Robert Joseph. They spoke to Stephanie Wood when she visited Mammalilcoa First Nation for their celebration earlier this year.
0: My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story.
1: Ainsley, we know indigenous conservation is proven, but how much land do these communities actually take care of? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we we know that
3: when indigenous peoples are leading conservation, that that conservation is stronger. That more biodiversity is protected. Around eighty percent of the world's remaining biodiversity is. Conserved by Indigenous peoples in their territories, and I think that's really significant given the context of a biodiversity crisis, and you know the the goals that we're we're setting out to try to conserve at least thirty percent of of land and waters by by twenty thirty, and I think there is a solution here.
2: Um, One person that Ainsley and I have both spoken to, and many of us at the Narwhal have spoken to, is um, Valerie Courtois from the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, who um, is just so knowledgeable and has really been a leader in IPCA's. And she talked about how, um, when you're talking about land conservation, when First Nations hold the pen, is how she said it. Uh, 50 to 60% and up to 100% of land and waters will wind up being protected. 50 to 60%. Now, I, I looked at a poll that said a lot of Canadians actually think that that's how much land is protected in Canada. Like, they think that so much more is protected than there is. The province has had an agreement to reach 17% protection by, I think, 2020. This was a former agreement. And um, nobody was able to meet that. (laughs) And BC has only added 1% extra protected land in the past decade. And Canada has two years left to reach its first 2025 goal. It has two years to add 12% of land, 11% of water protected. Once again, when you look at the pace and when you look at the ambition, once again, is the word that values is. When you look at Indigenous conservation versus what we're seeing demonstrated by colonial governments, there's just like a vast difference. And one is um, one is more ambitious and effective.
1: So if it works and it's been proven and it covers so much land, then what's holding Canada back from partnering with Indigenous communities to do more of this?
2: The very fact that IPCAs are becoming this big demonstration of Indigenous sovereignty is exactly why it's like a threat to everything underpinning what Canada is, is based on. It's uh, undermining the jurisdiction of the colonial government and upholding, uplifting the jurisdiction of Indigenous governments. Once again, we've seen like a very significant amount of funding from the federal and provincial government, but once again, it's kind of on their terms about how much is given and over what time that money is given. It's very often short-term funding and it's always a power dynamic that is Canada supreme and First Nations subordinate, Inuit and Métis subordinate, and so Indigenous peoples are really claiming these IPCA's as a way to renew their role as stewards and to reclaim reclaim everything that has been taken that inherently is quite groundbreaking, that inherently shakes the very foundation of what Canada is based on.
1: Yeah, it requires like... For, for governments, it requires a whole reframing, right, of the way things are done, which, as we know, is, is hard to do. Um, but I'm wondering, Ainsley, is it changing? I mean, we're hosting a global biodiversity conference or COP15 and, and you're going to be there. Is Indigenous conservation on the agenda?
3: I think there's definitely a growing sort of understanding and appreciation for the role that Indigenous peoples and communities are playing in conservation of biodiversity around the world. And you know at that the post 2020 global biodiversity framework is is still being finalized but in sort of the guiding principles and approaches, I think there there is an acknowledgement of that and and sort of you know one of these principles of of the whole agreement is that indigenous peoples have to be should be full participants in the decision making and that uh, decisions around conservation should be implemented with free prior and informed consent. You know, uh, Valerie Courchois, who, uh, like Steph mentioned, she said that there's so much that indigenous communities are bringing to the table around these conversations. It's kind of changing the frame of conversations around around biodiversity and how lands and resources are are thought about from one um, focused on sort of reaping immediate benefits for the people that are here now to one that's thinking more broadly about, you know, not only people who are here now, but also future generations. And in terms of the people living today, making sure that there's sort of more equitable benefit from the resources and, you know, plants and animals that we do use, making sure that it's not only going to sort of a select group of people who are benefiting from exploitation. And so I think that you know there is this recognition of the importance of indigenous led conservation to meeting the goals and that, and that being a benefit for for everybody and she said a lot of the work that indigenous communities are doing like mama lela that that's a example um, on the global stage that that we can all kind of learn from but i think there's also a recognition that there's still a, a long way to go
1: Steph. You know, is there anything Canadians can do to, um, you know, push for more Indigenous conservation-led, you know, solutions to address the biodiversity crisis?
2: Absolutely. And there's, depending on which project you're looking at, there's ways to directly support different First Nations um, pursuing different IPCAs, especially through NGOs and that kind of thing. There's some partnerships there that have been really positive, but it does largely come down to a real policy thing. Like it really does come down to governments fully recognizing indigenous sovereignty to the fullest extent, like beyond words, like through practice and actions um, through funding. And the other thing I like that Val said, shout out to Val, um, <laughs> is that Canada has this real opportunity to be a leader, not only in conservation, but in recognizing and respecting Indigenous sovereignty that would actually set it as a leader worldwide because we know Indigenous people are persecuted and displaced all around the world. Like, it's actually such an opportunity for Canada to be a, le- a leader in more way than one. Indigenous peoples are able to steward their territories. And when the land is healthy and taken care of, that benefits everybody and helps mitigate the climate change and biodiversity crisis that we're, that we're facing.
1: Thank you both for walking us through the biodiversity crisis and helping reframe this conversation to focus on indigenous conservation. I don't think many people make the link between the two as often as they should. And it's so cool that we were able to spend so much time to talk about it and share it with listeners.
2: Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you.
1: So those were my friends Stephanie Wood and Ainsley Crookshank, reporters with the Narwhal's BC Bureau. And that was another episode of Narwhal Week on The Big Story, which is almost over. So we really, really hope you've been enjoying these conversations as much as we've enjoyed bringing them to you. You can learn more about biodiversity and indigenous conservation by reading Ainsley and Steph's stories on thenarwal.ca. Ainsley's going to be in Montreal covering COP15, that biodiversity conference we talked about in December. So uh, stick around and, and stay tuned for more coverage on that. If by now, after these many episodes, you still don't know what the narwhal is, let me tell you. We're a nonprofit journalism magazine. We have no ads, we have no paywalls. And that's all because we've got more than 4,600 members in our pod. If you join today or tomorrow or whenever, you'll get a tax receipt and cool swag like a toque or a tote or a t-shirt. So if you wanna support award-winning climate journalism, visit thenarwal.ca slash member to join our pod, donate whatever you can afford. And if you want more climate journalism on this show, please tell them. The Big Story team loves talking about story ideas and wants to know how to cover the biggest emergency of our time. You can find the show literally everywhere. They're on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. They have an email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. They even have a phone number, 416-935-5935. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Fatma Sayed, sitting in for Jordan Heath-Rawlings. I'll see you tomorrow for another conversation about the climate emergency with another one of my friends at the Narwhal. Talk then.
0: In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show.